The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open it to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. You can also follow along in a version event um, that we have specifically designed for today. You're going to find all the verses in there in that, um, in that version event that we're going to be reading. Um, so I have, I've, I'm a runner, and well, at least I thought I was actually until this week. Um, I've been running uh, pretty consistently uh, for, for a few years, and over that time, I've, I've been thinking like, sometime I want to write, I wanna, if I were to write a book, I would call it everything I've ever learned about life I've learned from running. Um, and this week, I learned a lesson that I would add uh, to that book, and this week's lesson was never run with a runner. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Um, last week, I, I was gone with some friends to, um, we went and played golf in Utah, and the weather was phenomenal there. Um, it was absolutely gorgeous. And as we're, as we're driving last Sunday down to, down to southern Utah, um, I'm in the car with um, Ben Iskey and Scott Marsh and Scott's brother-in-law, Jonathan, and we're just kind of talking, and Jonathan starts talking about he, that he's a runner, and, he's, and one of the things he says is, he talks about what he sets his treadmill speed at when he runs. And I think I said something like, wow, that's really fast. I don't set my treadmill speed anywhere near that. But I really didn't understand what like his treadmill speed was. So Sunday night before we go to bed, I said, hey, Jonathan, I'm going to go running in the morning. If you, I, I would love for you to go with me. We'll meet downstairs at 6.15 and we'll go running. So we met at 6.15, walked out into the street, and we, we kind of started um, to do what I would now call um, jogging based on what he does. Um, so we, start, we started this thing, and he kind of looks at me, and he says, okay, well, we'll just run at your pace, which I learned is really deceiving. Um, because what you automatically always do is you always run to the pace of the person that's the fastest. And we probably got a quarter mile into this run, which ended up to be about a mile and a half run. We took a wrong turn, so it actually was like two and a half miles. It was longer than what we had initially intended on running. And I thought to myself, Jonathan is trying to kill me. Like he is, he is running me into the ground. And when we got, when we got back, I was like, I never want to go running with this guy ever again. Um, like it was, it was absolutely brutal. And the, the spiritual kind of lesson that I was thinking about that is like, we have, um, we have a real enemy and we need to know exactly what this, what this enemy is like. We need to know who this enemy is. Now, Jonathan wasn't my enemy, although I did think he was trying to kill me while we were running. Um, but the neat thing about that is, like yesterday, um, we got back from the trip, and yesterday, um, I, I ran on the treadmill in the morning, and one of the things I noticed throughout the week, I ran with him one additional time, and I noticed that the second time I ran with him, I was actually faster. And each day as I ran while we were gone, I was progressively faster and faster. So yesterday when I ran on the treadmill, um, I actually ran my fastest 10K pace in like 10 years. All because like he motivated me and incentivized me and wanted to kill me on Monday morning. Like it was really kind of amazing. But thing is, see, we have to, we have to recognize that we, we have a real enemy. 
And we have to know what this real enemy is like. And last week, Joe shared 1 Peter 5. Um, I'll say with us, because I was watching um, live while that was taking place. And this is how Peter closed his letter. He told his readers that the real enemy is prowling around like a lion bent on their destruction. See, what Peter is doing is he's, he's giving an identifier of what this spiritual enemy looks like. And he told them this so, they would, so that they would be encouraged and assured in the midst of their hardships that what they were experiencing was exactly a grace of God. And I think we need to remember that we have, we have a real spiritual enemy. And sometimes it's kind of easy for us to, to minimize and discount that. But we truly have someone who is out to destroy us. And I think if you were honest with yourself for, for a moment and you, and you look back on how you've struggled with sin in your life, you've felt the weight of what it's like being attacked in those ways. Like someone's actually out to destroy you. And with an enemy like that, we, we need to be prepared. We need to be on guard. Like when Jonathan talked about his treadmill pace, I, I, there's some more math I should have done on that. And as a Bible college graduate, I didn't, math was not my space, right? But I needed to understand when Jonathan was talking about his pace, I needed to know what that meant. I needed to know fast, how fast he was going to run. What I find so interesting about this spiritual enemy that we have is that at its best, our spiritual enemy is only like a lion. If you remember when we talked about the book of Revelation a few years ago, we talked about how, how the best thing that kind of Satan could do was mimic God, was copy God. You know, we, we read these about these three beasts and we, we think we want to attribute them to different political figures of our day when the reality was, again, if you remember that, the reality was it's kind of like a false trinity. Like the best Satan can do is mimic the reality of who God is. And what I find so fascinating about that is that while Satan can only prowl around like a lion, Jesus is actually the lion of Judah. Jesus is actually a real lion. And just as Peter has experienced this false lion of temptation and deceit and destruction, he also has experienced the real lion. He's experienced Jesus. And that's 2 Peter 1. And what Peter is going to do in his second letter is he's going, to, he's going to begin it much like the first. See, there's this reality that's going on. And oftentimes what we want in the midst of those realities is, right, we want to be told what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to react, how we're supposed to respond. We want to know the thing that we're supposed to do in light of our hardship. But Peter doesn't give us that. Peter talks about who God is and what God did. Because what Peter is doing is he's, he's trying to reorient us around our own lives. He's trying to recenter us on what is the thing that's the most important thing. And I know it's 2023, but the most important thing in your life is not you. It's God. It's God's will. It's God's purpose for you. Let's read verses 1 to 4 from 2 Peter 1. This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. 
May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, and be, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. See, Peter is telling us who God is. He's telling us what God has done. And Jesus Christ is our God and Savior. And he gave us the gift of faith. And this is really important for us to understand this text. He did not give us the gift of faith because of who we are. In fact, it was despite who we are, despite the fact that we're sinners and we're worthy of God's wrath. What Jesus has done is he has given us grace, a gift of of faith. He didn't give us that gift of faith because of who we were going to be. Sometimes this is what we think. God saved me because he has plans for me and he knew who I was going to be. So he has saved me. No, this text tells us something pretty important. Jesus gave us faith because of his justice and his fairness. That's why he saved you. Other translations are going to use the word righteousness. The reason that Jesus has given us this gift is, is not because of who we are, but because of who he is. See, this reorients us off of ourselves, focuses our attention on who God is. And then he says this, our knowledge of God leaves us, leads us to receiving more and more grace and peace from God. So knowledge, knowledge is not just head knowledge. When, when Peter is writing about this, when the authors of the Bible talk about knowledge, they're not talking about head knowledge. They're not talking about information. They're talking about transformation. This is what transformation looks like when we grow in peace and we grow in grace. That's how we are transformed. And this is what it sounds like to live a godly life. And that's really hard. Living a godly life is something that's really, really hard. But what Peter says, and again, we see this elsewhere in Scripture, the way to living a godly life is to know who God is. To not know about him, but actually to know him recognizing and acknowledging that God is God. God is the Lord. This is about God. See, it's because of who God is that we have these promises of new life. It's because of who God is that we have the hope that we have. And this is not dependent or based on us. And so much of what we try and do in our own spiritual lives is, is make our spiritual lives about us, about our efforts Throughout this letter, Peter's going to remind his readers of a lot of things. What I would encourage you to do this week, actually, is, is as you're reading through 2 Peter, I would love for you to circle the number of times that the word remind is used or remember is used. Peter is reminding them of who God is and what God has done. Don't forget who Jesus is we would do well to begin our lives with the reality of who Jesus is. 
take our eyes off of, our, off of ourselves. I know when we wake up in the morning, we, we automatically default. Like, what's, what does my day look like? How am I going to spend my time? What am I going to put my effort and energy into? And the best thing that we can do as Christians is to think about Jesus. To remember who he is and what he's done. And it's only after he's done this that he gives instructions. Right? So let's read starting in verse 5. In view of all of this, so because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done, because of these promises, because of the knowledge that leads to transformation, because of all of this, in view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. So you've been given a promise, now you want to respond to it. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. Do you see how that progresses? Do you see that transformation? The more you grow like this, the more productive and and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you are really among those who God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I will always remind you About these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. And it is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this heavenly earth. So I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I am gone. Like, what are Peter's instructions? To the promises that God has given us, what does Peter tell the people to do? Does he tell them to read the Bible more? Does he tell them to pray more? Does he tell them to go to church? Those are all important things, but that's not where Peter goes. What Peter tells them to do is not engage in a flurry of religious activity. And isn't that what we often want to do? I don't know about you, but like when I... When I engage like in a time of sinfulness, right? When, we, when, I'm, when, when I act upon my sin, often what I want to do is my thought is, you know what I should do? Like I should just go read my Bible for 10 minutes and then I'll feel better. I should pray for 10 minutes and then I'll feel better. I should do the spiritual thing and then I'll feel better as though I'm trying to earn favor back with God. Like I just did a really lousy uh, time with that past hour So I know what I do to make it up. I'm going to read my Bible for an hour. See, that's not what God is calling us to do. God is not calling us into this flurry of religious activity to earn our salvation, to earn our way back into God's good graces. That's not what he's doing. That's just, honestly, that's like, that's empty moralism. And that's why you, that's why we all fail at it. That's why the next time we spend that time 
in sin and then we want to earn it again. Like it's just, it's morality and it's empty and it's why we fail. It's adding works to Jesus. We've kind of talked about this before. Jesus plus anything equals nothing, right? Jesus plus my works equals nothing. Jesus minus everything equals salvation. See, my hope is in Jesus. It's not in my works. It's not in my moralism. It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't work. And what this list is out to tell us is not do religious things. It is be holy as I am holy. See, if we're wondering what that phrase means, like that's one of those Bible phrases, be holy as I'm holy, what does that look like? See these verses. This is what it looks like to be the people that God is calling us to be. And this is what God is after in us. He's actually after us to be transformed. It's not about rituals. It's not about how much we read our Bible. Again, those are good things. Those, those are the things that God uses to transform us. But we also have to be transformed. We can have head knowledge of who God is and not be transformed. And what I've noticed is these, like, these things are really hard. Let's read them again. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. But like, isn't reading our Bible just easier? Like this is real transformation that Peter is talking about. It's much easier for me to come to church on Sunday than it is for me to demonstrate self-control, isn't it? What we're being faced with is transformation. Transformation is how we share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. It's not by reading the Bible more. What I need is more self-control. What you need is more self-control. What I need is patient endurance. What you need is patient endurance. And I love the way he describes this. He says, the more we respond in these ways, the more we participate in this transformation, the less likely we are to be ineffective. Some of us have this really ineffective spiritual life and we're wondering why. It's because we're not participating in the transformation that God offers us. We see what we're being called into but we don't participate. These qualities in verses five to seven prevent us from being useless. They prevent us from being unfruitful. And when we truly know him and that knowledge leads to transformation, we're actually useful in God's kingdom. We're actually functioning as we are called to function in God's kingdom. And, and when we refuse to do that, Peter writes that we're short-sighted and blind. We can't see. If we're wondering, maybe you're wondering, like, why? Why do I feel this way? Why do I feel so ineffective in God's kingdom? Maybe it's because you haven't been transformed. 
Maybe it's because you really haven't experienced this thing that Peter is talking about. And one of the things that I've realized just in my own life, like transformation into the image of God is going to require something of you. Transformation into the image of God is going to require something from you. It's going to require time and effort and energy. And these are the kind of things that we know. Like if we were to think about our own, like just think physical health for a moment. There are, there are a couple important building blocks to good physical health, right? There's sleep, there's exercise, and there's diet. And if you, if you get those three things right, you're off to a, you'll be off to a pretty good start. You might be able to waffle on one of them. But if you, if you start getting out of, out of whack on, on two of those three things, your physical health is going to suffer. But exercise is hard, right? Food is good, right? There has to be some kind of shortcut, right? We wanna, like I want a pill that's going to that's gonna, um, speed me up in my physical health. And I think the trouble is, this is how a lot of us spend our spiritual lives. We 100% know, and I'm going to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here for a second. We 100% know the value of spending time in Scripture, if it's leading to transformation. We know the value of prayer, if it's leading to transformation. We know the value of the gathering, if it's leading to transformation. But it's hard. Reading the Bible is hard. We get about 10 seconds into prayer and our mind starts to wander about every other thing that's going on. See, it requires discipline for us. It requires time and effort and energy for us. Transformation is hard work. And Jesus has done the work. Jesus has saved us. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about what it looks like for me to live a transformed life to desire to live a transformed life. A few weeks ago, I was at a, um, a thing for Global Leadership Summit, and uh, one of the teachers was talking about the difference between, between training and trying. You ever thought about that? Training and trying. And the difference between training and trying has, has literally, I think, nothing to do with ability. I think the difference between training and trying has everything to do with willingness. I think the difference between training and trying has everything to do with desire. I think the difference between training and trying has everything to do with passion. Years ago, when I, when I worked at Best Buy, we, we, had, we had employees who struggled in their, like in their role in what they were doing. So we would, we would get together, like all the managers would get together. Maybe we'd get together with their supervisor and we would kind of sit down and we'd talk about them. Like that was our job was to evaluate our employees. And we, we kind of came up with this, and I don't know that we came up with it, but we used this, this rubric, this measurement as we were dealing with an employee who wasn't performing. And the question was this, are they unable to do it or are they unwilling to do it? And if someone's unable, like when we, like we would talk to them and 
we kind of determined that they were, they were unable, what we would do is we'd then spend our time coaching and teaching and training them, right? Making sure they had the tools they had to be able to perform. But what if somebody was, what if somebody was unwilling? What if someone had all of the tools and all of the training and all of the equipping and they just didn't want to do it? Those, those, those employees were pretty hard to save. And I think for us as Christians, when we think about the Christian life, when we think about transformation, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, am I unable to do it? So do I need more tools? Do I need someone to sit down with me and show me how to read my Bible? Do I need to open up the YouVersion Bible app during the week and, and actually like read that daily scripture? It's the easiest thing in the entire world. When you open the app, the scripture of the day is literally the first thing you see. Right? Do I need to be, do I need to be taught? Do I need to be coached? Do I need to be shown how to read my Bible? Or am I just unwilling? Like this transformation stuff sounds really good. Like I would love to do that, but I'm, I'm just not willing to, I'm just not willing to tra train. I'm just not willing to spend the time required of me. And as we think about our Christian life, the question we have to ask is like, am I, am I training for the Christian life or am I trying for the Christian life? Paul says something really interesting in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. It doesn't say trying. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. We're not running this race of life for a, for a garland crown, for a medal. What we're in training for is an eternal prize. So I run with, per so because of that, I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should Evaluate your spiritual life right now. Evaluate your transformation. Are you in training or are you in trying? Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. You hear Paul in that? This is Paul, Apostle Paul, knocked off the horse by Jesus, Paul, saved by Jesus, Paul. The guy that we all read about and we think, oh, if I could just, if I had that experience, I'd be all in. Did you hear what he said? Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. See, what Paul's concern is, is that sometimes he is just trying. 
He has to remind himself that he's training for something that matters. And what we're entering into with a relationship with Christ is, is not a list of rules. See, this is where, this is where if we're not careful, the way we talk about the Christian life, like non-Christians might peer into our lives and if all we have is moralism, the picture that we have painted for them is a list of do's and don'ts. A list of rights and wrongs. A list of rules. But a relationship with Jesus isn't about religious activity. See, what we are entering into when we become followers of Christ is we are entering into the opportunity to be holy as God is holy. And we don't do this under our own power. We don't do this under our own effort. But strangely, what does Peter say? Make every effort to respond to God's promises and work hard to prove that we are really among those God has called and chosen. Do you make every effort to respond to God's promises? Think about the thing that you are most dedicated to in your life. Are you pursuing God like that? Are you making every effort? Are you working hard to prove? And don't misunderstand, this activity doesn't earn us anything. It's not Jesus plus me working hard. What Peter writes is this is a demonstration. See, when we work hard to be transformed, when we work hard to live this way, we are demonstrating, we are proving, we are revealing to others that's a transformation that we talk about as Christians is actually something that's real. And sometimes I think that non-Christians look at our lives and we talk a really good transformation game. But the reality of it is we're not transformed. There's functionally nothing different between us and the rest of the world. And what good is transformation if I'm going to be the same person I was before I met Jesus? What's the use? Why, why would I do that? We want to be transformed. Why is, why is Peter so adamant about this? Let's read verses 16 to 18. For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. See, what Peter is talking about here is the is the time that he saw and experienced the fullness of the reality of who Jesus is. Peter is so adamant about this. Peter is so concerned about this because he has seen Jesus. He was with Jesus. And if you're, maybe, maybe you're familiar with scripture, 
This is talking about the transfiguration when, when Jesus went up on the mountain and was transfigured. We actually can read about this in Mark chapter 9. If we flip back to Mark 9, again, if you're in the version, it's right there for you. Mark chapter 9. People believe that, that Mark was actually written from, from Peter's recollections of his time with Jesus. We talked about this in staff meeting a few weeks ago. I think we said the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Mark, according to Peter, about Jesus Christ. This is verse 2, Mark 9. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Can you imagine that moment for a second? Right? You've got Moses representing the law. You've got Elijah representing the prophets. And then there's Jesus. Right? That's what's going on in this story. And God is going to do something amazing Amazing to Jesus to differentiate him from the law and the prophets. Peter, of course, doesn't get that. He says, Rabbi, it's wonderful us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he really didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. What I love about this is I, I imagine that Peter is telling Mark this, and like Mark's writing, and Mark kind of looks at him, he's like, you said What? And Peter's like, yeah, I had no idea what I was supposed to say in this moment. Then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus with them. So again, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Jesus, is he a great prophet? Is he a keeper of the law? No, he is above both of them as demonstrated by the fact that Moses and Elijah disappear. It's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's not the law. It's not the prophets. It's only Jesus. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. See, this is what Peter is talking about back in 2 Peter. He's talking about this experience. Like one day, we went up, Jesus took us up this mountain, and all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah were there. And I didn't know what to do, so I said something stupid. Thanks, Mark, for memorializing that for me. And then those guys disappeared. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. We ourselves heard that voice. That's what drives me. See, that experience of Jesus changed Peter, reoriented his entire life. And this experience, this opportunity is offered to every single one of us. This same experience. This life is offered to you. And I hate to burst your bubble. It's not because of how great you are. 
God is not thinking, man, if I could save that person, that dude would be awesome for me. No, it's because of how great God is. It's because of Jesus' justice and fairness and his righteousness. That's why he has saved us. See, Peter writes this letter to those who share the same precious faith that he and his co-author had. The same faith. Not a different faith, the same faith. Jesus gave Peter all he needed to live a godly life. Jesus gave that to the readers of this letter. And if you're a Christian, you have the same exact faith that Peter had. You experienced Jesus in the same way by him saving you. He's given this to you if you are a Christian. And if you're not a follower of Christ, like this is available to you. This life is available. This transformation is available to you. These promises of transformation, they're available to you. The ability to share in the divine nature of God, can you believe that? Like there's a text in Revelation that talks about how how when we enter into eternity with Jesus. It talks about believers are going to sit on the throne with Jesus and judge nations. Can you imagine that? And I think sometimes our response to that is, okay, I guess. We get to sit on the throne with Jesus. We get to share his divine nature. And one of my favorite things is we are enabled to escape the world's corruption. Aren't some of you just ready to escape the world's corruption? And I don't mean just like, I can't wait to get out of here. I mean, aren't you just ready to have the weight of sin removed from your soul? Aren't you just ready for that? To not always feel compelled to sin? To not always feel compelled to do the wrong thing? Like, we, Ann and I were watching this show a few weeks ago. We've, we've since stopped watching it. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to go into any details. But there was this thing that the show was building up to and building up to and building up to and building up to. And, like, I should have just shut it, like, as, at, the first, at the first feeling of my gut sinking inside of me. Like, if I were half of a Christian that I proclaim myself to be, like, we just would have turned it off. And like the thing finally happened and I'm just like, oh gosh, I, you know, I hate this corrupt world. I hate the fact that this corrupt world made me, made me to look to anticipation of that sin that they just celebrated. Like I'm just so ready to be done. This transformation, if you're not a follower of Christ, is available to you. This productive in life Productive and useful life is available to you. So the questions that we kind of have to ask ourselves are, have we, have we encountered this lion of Judah? Or have we only encountered the fake lion? Have we seen and heard Jesus? Are you training in confidence 
because of that encounter with Jesus? Are you moved by the Holy Spirit to make every effort and work hard to demonstrate the transformed life? See, one of the things that Peter is telling us here is, is this, this Jesus stuff is not just made up. It's not a figment of anyone's imagination. Peter says in verse 9, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention for, to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines it in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. What Peter is doing is he's telling us that this encounter with Jesus so impacted and affected his life that it is the singular effort of his life. It is the most important thing in his life life. And there are so many people in this room who have experienced that transformative experience, and it's not because they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, but because they submitted themselves to the power of Jesus. Because they read and saw what Jesus did for these people in this book. And they experienced the reality of who Jesus is from other people, from other Christians. They were loved and they were honored and they were served. And they thought to themselves, like, I want to be a part of that. I want to be transformed. They saw people who were one way and are now another way. Not because of their own power, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit. They submitted to Jesus. And Jesus in John sixteen thirty three says this. And I'm saying this to you with his words. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me, peace in Jesus. The reason we do this on a Sunday morning, the reason we proclaim the word and we talk about these hardships and realities is so that we will have peace in Jesus. Because you know the thing that you're trying to find peace in is not working. Maybe it is now, but this thing that you're currently finding peace in, didn't it replace something else that ultimately failed you? And didn't that thing fail you and fail you and fail you and fail you? I was talking with a friend about this a few weeks ago. So many of our lives are this progression of one meaningless, empty satisfaction after another. Well, this didn't do it, so I'm going to try that. And that didn't do it, so I'm going to try this. I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me, in Jesus. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So in this mindset of remembering, it shouldn't be any surprise that each week here at Westway Christian Church, we take time to remember. We take time to remind ourselves who Jesus is. We take time to remember how Jesus overcame the world. And the way that we do that is through communion. This is how we remember. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 25 says this. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. 
Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For each time, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So let's remember, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood poured out for you. Let's pray. God, we are a people in need of remembering that you have saved us. We are a people in need of remembering that you desire to transform us. You desire to make us into something new. And that something new is going to be a lifetime of transformation. We all wish it were so much faster, but it is a lifetime of transformation. It is a lifetime of training in our time and effort and energy. And we do these things because of the reality of who you are, because of the reality that you saved us, that you delivered us from our sin. We are not training alone. We have someone who, who does not allow us to go at our own pace. We have someone that says, run with me. Stay with me. It's going to be hard, but I'm with you. And that person is Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.